everybody. Welcome to episode four of Literary Disco. The chairs are where the people go episode. I'm your host, actor, filmmaker, and recovery poet, Ryder Strong. Joining me today is uh, essayist, radio personality, and improviser artist, Julia Pastel. Hello, Julia. <laughs> Hi, Ryder. And also joining us is novelist, critic, and uh, hater of hipsters, Todd Goldberg. <laughs> and close talker. I, I just and recently close talker. as well. It is true. Uh, when listening to past episodes, we've noticed that Todd uh, has a tendency to speak a little too close to his mic. Uh, so today, on today's episode, we're going to do a bookshelf revisit, and then we will have our first author guest, Catherine Burrell, uh, author of the memoir Corked, and she chose the book The Chairs Are Where the People Go, which we will be discussing in a little bit. But first, bookshelf revisit. Lady, gentlemen, have you guys revisited your bookshelf? Just to, just to be clear, Julia is the lady? Thank you for defending my lady honor. Just I, I have the machinery. I've got both, and I don't know if that's weird to talk about it now. Maybe for another episode. Okay, you are really sassy tonight. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even done anything yet. You know what? Uh, that, I'm just going to get this party started. Uh, for my bookshelf revisit, uh, because we have a tendency to talk a lot of uh, crap about poets. I've decided to go back and talk about one of my favorite poets. He's a contemporary poet. His name is Tony Hoagland. Um, and he is, he's, he's a, he's an amazing poet. He's very, he has a tendency sometimes to write, um, to try and write cynical poetry, like contemporary poetry that, that falls into the trap of like, uh, writing about malls and he has a poem about <laughs> Britney Spears and stuff like that. And I find those kinds of poet poems, of his less interesting, but he, he has a real romantic side in the traditional romantic sense. Uh, but what I wanted to do today was discuss his, uh, some of his vocabulary poetry. He, he has a real love affair with grammar and uh, who doesn't? Uh, vernacular. I'll tell you what, I love a gerund. If, if I'm, <laughs> if I can't get to that place, I just, I think of gerunds and that, uh, oh, that never met a gerund. You didn't know. Like. I, I, I mean that. So he, he has a love of vernacular and he, oh, yeah. he he has this sort of theory of language that, uh, you know, he, he, he in his poetry, he always talks about how language is moving around us and through us and how it sort of defines us or can help or hinder us. And um, for instance, he has this great poem called Dickhead, <laughs> which is all about being a, uh, a being a skinny, scrawny little kid and how once he mastered the use of the word dickhead, it became this sort of self-defense mechanism. And he describes it as a hammer, mm. like a heavy, heavy hammer that he could use. And um, and he has another poem called My Father's Vocabulary, which he discusses the different sort of catchphrases um throughout history and the poem begins in the history of American speech. He was born between dirty commies and nice tits. Uh, and he just discusses how his father was, you know, the vocabulary that his father was born in. And then he talks about the era that he, Tony Hoagland was, was born in. And he says this great line, I hear myself speak and it feels like I am wearing a no longer groovy cologne from the seventies. So he just has this great way, this great way of describing language and discussing language um, and sort of taking a moment to pause and and look at how he's using it or how people around him are using it. Uh, so I wanted to read this whole poem, if I could. It's called The Confessional Mode. I wish somebody would take a razor and just slit my throat, my mother often used to say, 
at that lovely time of evening when the stars gleamed like spangles on a corset wrapped around the broad, ungirlish waist of the earth. Put a bag over my head, pretty please, and let me blow my brains out in the sink. The mouth is such a terrible instrument, such a bloody harmonica, wailing its complaints, but it's the greatest insulters we remember. The ones with a vocabulary of cancer and barbed wire. I'm the fucking Jew here, she would announce, setting down the dinner plates, smiling like a woman invited to consume a meal of broken teeth, and everyone would sigh and shiver over their spaghetti and wait for that particular Russian novel to be over. What strange appetites we have that make us rewind time and summon up the landscapes of our pain, long after the lips have been unleashed from their humiliated smiles and the silverware gone to the graveyard for old forks and knives. Yet some craving draws me backward, and the words for telling it march out of my mouth with a pleasure that is almost biological, as if the telling were a sort of sweet revenge, though I have noticed also how each telling renders me a little bit more ruthless, old, and capable of saying anything. I like that. Yeah. Now, if poets poem. just read their poetry like that, they wouldn't sound like such fucktards all the Most time. of them do, Todd. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the bad poets who are insecure about their stuff or who are sort of in that culture of, of poet speak. But I just love the way that in that poem, for example, the way he swirls, like, you know, his mother and his relationship with his mother and all this sort of issues that this woman had with her language and serving them food and remembering. I just think it's brilliant. And, um, you know, in general, even beyond the language stuff, he's an amazing poet and he's very accessible, which I I tend to love more accessible, more narrative poets. And um, he's a great contemporary poet, Tony Hoagland. All right. So who's next? Go ahead, Julia. I'll just take it forcibly. I don't need you to give me permission, Todd. <laughs> hey, you're the second wave feminist in the room. I'm just I'm just happy to be here. Correct. Okay, so um, I pulled out something. I don't know if you guys have read this, but um, I came across this a couple years ago, published by Tin House. It's the Journal of Jules Renard. Have you guys read this book? No. No. It's barely a book. Okay. It's um. <laughs> It's this guy, he was a French writer, you know, 19th century French writer. There were a lot of them, they were awesome. But um, what's particularly great about this guy is that he kept this journal that is just, it's so beautifully written and it is not narrative in any normal way. And sometimes the entries are really short and don't, they're completely out of context. So I just opened to a random page right now, I'll do this a couple times. Um... Okay, so this is an entire entry. The lady's companion who receives you with a hopeful smile, colon, perhaps you are the one who will treat her with consideration. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's another one. Uh, one must keep an eye on the peasant. He still sniffs with joy the odor of the nobleman, the powerful, the rich. No colon in that one? No colon. Ah. I don't understand. Is it a diary or is it just sort of these random observations? It's both. I mean, I'm not reading mm -hmm. any of the diary portions because they're longer, but some of the things are just so beautiful and um, they're they're really poignant and completely out of context. But what, what is great about the journal is that it goes for his entire life. Mm. So you don't mm -hmm. get a natural story of this person's life, but you get a story of his moods, the moods of his life. It spans from 1887 to 1910. Hmm. 
So it's it's really beautiful, and I'm not doing it justice because I was lazy and didn't look up any of the best ones. Like, oh, I'll read some off the back. Sarah Bernhardt, when she comes down the winding staircase of the hotel, it looks as though she were standing still while the staircase turns around her. That's great. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. Books have lost their savor. They no longer teach me anything. It is as though one were to suggest to a painter that he copy a painting. Oh, nature, there is only you left. <laughs> That's great. So it's really, it's hard to explain why it's so captivating, but when you read a lot of it, you just get this feeling of this French writer hanging out, thinking his extremely lonely thoughts and, you know, the melancholy of a 19th century French writer's life. I'm into it. I love it. Um, so I have an equally highbrow and esoteric thing to... Um, to writer's poetry and Julia's uh, 18th century Frenchman, which is that um, I was uh, I was at the uh, LA Times Festival of Books a couple weeks ago. By the time you guys hear this, who knows when it will have been. Um, but uh, the author, Joseph Wambaugh, was talking. And he wrote all these iconic crime novels and also nonfiction books like The Onion Field in the 1960s and um, The New Centurions, which was all about cops in L.A. and he had a book out a couple years ago called Hollywood Station. He's sort of a, a legend in crime writing. And uh, he was asked, um, you know, how do you come up with a new idea for a book? And he said, I go and I sit down with 50 cops and I buy them all dinner. And I put a tape recorder in the middle of the room and I let them talk. And that's how I come <laughs> up with my ideas. And I thought, <laughs> if you put that dude into an MFA program and had him say that every single one of these, you know, oh, I first I must go to Columbia and, and learn my, not that there's anything wrong with Columbia, right? I was going to say. Yeah. Whoa. I have to first. You picked Harvard, huh? I had to go with Columbia. <laughs> Sorry about that. First I go Princeton, to Tufts. Yale. Uh, yeah, there you go. And I have to, you know, I have to understand who I am and learn about my soul and all this other, you know, light candles crap. And it reminded me of these times when, you know, before people thought they had to go to school to be a writer, this dude was just a, a beat cop in L.A. who wrote about, you know, crime that was going on. And The Onion Field is about an iconic murder of a police officer. Um, and it was just was sort of striking to me the difference in how people today write versus people, you know, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and also just sort of about the, the sort of culture of writing. Because, you know, this guy actually was a cop, but then he also goes out and talks to cops. And I'm thinking, well, if he asks me, how do I come up with my ideas? I'm going to be like, well, um, I sit in my Pottery Barn office and I listen to sad alt country. And then I imagine bad shit happening. And then I pretty much type it. And it, it just I just sound like the biggest pussy on earth compared to these guys. And it's just such a... Well, well and I am a huge vagina. Um... Just a massive size of a small city state, um, but do we have to go back to the second wave feminism? <laughs> yeah, why do we? Because being a vagina is so bad. This is the. I, I am a big fan of vaginas. This is already yeah. spiraling out of control. <laughs> but I was I was just really struck by um, by something else he said, which is that when he was working on his book and in the nineteen sixties, and he was a cop, he was also taking night classes at like. Cal State LA or something in poetry and literature, but couldn't tell anyone that he was doing it because he didn't want people to, to say to him, other cops to say, oh, you know, you're, you're weak and all these things. But then when he wrote the book and it came out, 
they celebrated him. And so it's just this bizarre sort of right. cult of what makes a writer interesting or uninteresting and, and how things are, are different and, and how unmanly I truly am. I feel like I'm just <laughs> primarily whipped cream and diet soda is what I'm composed well, of <laughs> compared to these people. Well, Todd, what is the lesson? Yeah, what are you going to do about it, Todd? Yeah, get out of your house more. Well, <laughs> come to come to LA. We'll like go hang out with drug that dealers. That seems really interactive, and <laughs> and I got a deadline for uh, a really violent book I'm writing, and I haven't been in a fight in 25 years. Thank God. Not that I'm well, looking for one. Well, do you think? Okay, so here's a question: Do you think the extreme rise of media available to us and research available to us has sort of, you know, made us soft? Oh, absolutely. Todd, has it made you soft that you don't actually ever have to talk to a cop? Well, but I do. You can I, Google the hell out of it. I, I, I do a lot of research type stuff, so I do do that. But by the same token, um, you know, if I want to – well, for instance, when I was um, when I was writing my burn notice books, like, I could figure out how to blow stuff up by, you know, Googling it at 3 o'clock in the morning and versus actually going out there and doing it. And I think – there's a big difference between knowing how to do something technically and actually getting your hands dirty. And I think that's a little bit of a difference today for some people. Um, that that hands-on research just isn't out there. I think that the more that we all refer to the first five pages of Google as our research, yeah, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up having more of an echo chamber effect where writers are just sort of quoting each other and using the same things over and over again. So mm -hmm. in that environment, the more, the you know, to every young writer out there, I think it's better off, you're better off just going out and doing your own research in person. That's when you get so many books about writing about writing and writing about writers, which to a certain degree I really like, but to a certain degree I never want to read again. Yeah, I agree. Said, said the group of writers on their podcast about reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, we're hypocrites, as ever. And on that note, stick around when we sit down with Catherine Burrell. Come on. Welcome back to Literary Disco. This is Ryder Strong, and I am joined in person uh, by Todd Goldberg. Hello, everybody. And uh, via a Google Hangout, Julia Pistel. Hi, Julia. Hi, guys. And then with us, we have our very special guest, Catherine Burrell, uh, who is a Toronto-based writer. She's written a memoir called Corked. And uh, her writing has appeared in Walrus Magazine, The Globe and Mail, UK Guardian. She does interviews for The Believer. Corked was one of the best books of 2009 by Quill and Quill Magazine. And it was also nominated for a Stephen Leacock. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Stephen Leacock Medal uh, for Humor. And you were the youngest nominee for that? Yeah, I think I was one of the... Uh, one, that, you probably got that from my Wikipedia yeah. entry, which I wrote myself. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's so sad. Uh, and uh, I, I, did, I did a quick inventory of the uh, the past uh, winners and nominees, and I, I just I just decided that I was one of the youngest. Awesome. So I like I, that. You should have put some other stuff in, like, <laughs> smallest waist of any winner. <laughs> Best hair. That's right. Most likely to succeed. Wonkiest eyes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thanks um, for having me. So 
it's great to have you on because we actually, one of the books that we read as a group was Half a Life, which I then recommended to you. Yes. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a parallel because your memoir discusses the fact that you actually hit someone when you were, how old were you? I was 21. 21. It was 2001, yeah. And uh, he was an older man who died because of this accident and yeah. it kind of spiraled you off and then you wrote this book, which is actually about you going on a trip with your father in France. But... Um, one of the things that we talked about with Half a Life is how unfunny it was, mm -hmm. and how there was, yeah, I mean, not in a, not as a criticism, but just that it was Should such be a more laughs. Than yeah, this. well, we were just saying like it's such <laughs> a depressing, yes. such a depressing, devastating subject, and and the idea of you know, how awful that would be. But your book is actually pretty funny, and was that always the plan to like be funny, or is that just the way you write? I, I think it's the way that I write. I think that um, my, you know, when I started to write. Uh, I, whatever I, I don't want to say this it always sounds so trite yeah I've written forever I've written my whole life I mean I, I really have been writing for a very <laughs> long okay. time uh out of necessity and also for pleasure but um uh when I really started becoming interested in uh in you know delving into characters for example I had this great character right under my roof who was my father when I when I had my car accident which was on February 23rd 2001 uh it was during my reading week from university and so um I had been driving along this this main thoroughfare in, in Quebec City where my parents live and uh, this this old man had uh, stepped out into this four lane sort of highway area. Um, I had, you know, the light was green. I was driving the speed limit. Um, and so he just kind of darted in front of me and I tried to swerve the vehicle that I was driving to uh, avoid him and I ended up clipping him uh, on the right side of the car. And um, yeah, and, and he, he died three days later in the hospital. Um, so uh, while I was, you know, depressed and confused and, uh, and, and in shock, um, and, and the other thing that was really difficult was trying to, uh, relate to my family and the people around me and everyone was trying to do and say the right kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of people have trouble dealing with those who have just encountered a traumatic thing, uh, because, you know, there's no brochure that parents can, can pick up like, right. what happens when your 21 daughter has killed a man? <laughs> you know, it's like not, it's not exactly rote. Uh, so, um, uh, a few days later, my father was driving me to the airport, and uh, it was snowy, and we were driving, and he and he was driving sort of, again, nor normal speed limit, and in the distance, uh, an elderly man, not as old as the one that I killed, but sort of an elderly man, stepped out to jaywalk, and uh. he was in the distance, and I looked at my father, and, you know, like, my, my heart caught in the back of my throat, and he didn't even look at me. He just stared straight ahead, pressed on the accelerator, and said, what do you think? Should we make it two for two? Oh, Jesus. And it, oh, I was so relieved for that joke in that moment. Yeah. Like, there was such a, a you know, a weight that lifted off. It didn't last. But in that moment, I was so free of this terrible thing that had happened um, and grateful for it that I think that kind of stuck for me yeah. that um it it is uh you know and, and this has been said a zillion times that you can use humor to kind of you know transmute uh any experience really if you use it well um but it, it was in that moment that i realized sort of the the, the power of comedy yeah mm -hmm. totally i mean really your book is about this trip with your mm -hmm. dad yes. and, and i mean that's it's true that this glimpse of mortality made you very concerned with his mortality yes. and and this question that he owned how many thousands of bottles of wine? A couple, yeah, a couple thousands That's of bottles crazy. of wine in the cellar that right. he that he's had since my since I was a kid, and uh, and sort of having this this moment of existential crisis in my in my dad's cellar, 
uh, where, where I understood that there would be no possible way uh, for him to drink his way through his <laughs> cellar in his lifetime. So I had that right. moment of realization where the this, you know, at least 800 of these bottles w- would one day be bequeathed to me. Right. And because I had so willfully kind of not w- wanted to understand my father's greatest passion, like the thing that he spoke so lyrically about. And I had this moment where I was like, this is going to be my stuff. I'm not going to have the vocabulary with which to understand this thing that he loves so much. And if I don't know this, if I don't know about this relationship that he has with wine, maybe I won't know him. Maybe I won't know myself, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of what unclenched this, um, this trip that I took with him through France yeah. to, uh, we, and we took this har- sort of harvest trip in, in France and, uh, during the harvest season of 2005 for wine. And, we visited four of the major wine growing regions in France, and yeah. I just figured, like, if I could maybe dig my hands into the soil, like, of you know, his his country, which is France, and also this passion that he had, that maybe I could, you know, have, create an access point to a deeper part of his psyche and therefore mine. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so so much of the book is also, it seems to me, like about the search for language. I mean, you talk about explicitly as like mm-hmm. finding the language of love that you have an ex boyfriend that you're dealing with a breakup, and then finding the language. And I just I love that because so much of um, because I grew up in wine country in Northern California too. And like, we always used to make jokes about wine language and talking about wine and how it's so easy to be full of shit when you're talking about wine. We used to go wine tasting and pretend we'd throw Star Wars terms into our tastings. So we'd be like, it's a little Sithy, a little Sithy, but, and like no one would ever notice, you know? Is this from Naboo? Yeah, exactly. This this tastes a little Dagobah. Do you taste Dagobah in this? But um, yeah, so, uh, but your book is so packed full of metaphors. It was like so much of the joy of the book is like you coming up with um, as many metaphors as you can on a page and then analyzing you coming up with metaphors and then coming up with metaphors for the wine. Um, it was great. I love that part of, about the book. Um, what did your dad think about the book? My dad, uh, some, I, I let my dad stupidly and, and, and any of you out there, uh, if you decide to write a book that's about your parents, don't let them read every single draft. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, it really is like chaining them up to a, a wow. horse, uh, and letting, you know, letting the horse wait, run. Wait till the book's been remaindered through a swamp yeah. pretty much. Um, so I think, uh, the first draft, I was too easy on my dad, uh, right. and it, it it actually came off as as, as untruthful. So yeah. second draft, I I really uh, I really did a major takedown of my father's uh, just whole being, um, yeah. and he read that draft and apparently, and I've never seen my father cry. No one wants to see their father cry, but my mother called me and said your father's been crying all afternoon. Oh, so oh that was yeah. Well, that's why I asked because I mean it it begins. It's a pretty unflattering portrait of him in the beginning of the book, yeah. and obviously throughout the course of the book you you come to really love your dad and get to know him much better and understand where he comes from. And yes. by the end of the book, you're like, Oh, this guy's have led an incredible life and it all makes sense in a way. Right. What was lovely was, uh, when he read the third draft, um, which I think is the most honest representation, like what ended up in the book, I think is, is really truly who my father is. He was able to see some of his, how some of his more eccentric behaviors have damaged, uh, relationships within our family. Um, he read them, he was able to sort of see his behaviors objectively, or at least, you know, uh, in, in a subjective manner through my eyes. And he's actually modified all wow, of these really? behaviors. So wow. it's been this, like, That's amazing. it's amazing. And it's been this really cleansing thing for the family. And, and, you know, the book did fine in Canada. It was a complete commercial flop in the United States, which kind of broke my heart. But uh, I kind of don't care because it served its purpose. Right. And I didn't even know that that was going to be the purpose that it was going to serve, but it has bonded our family um, in a way that I could have never anticipated. And so 
I feel like that if that's what the role of this book was, then great, right. it did it, and what a what a right. wonderful thing. Because now we're so close, and holidays are a fucking joy in the Burrell family. <laughs> that's amazing. Really that's great. so cool. That's pretty amazing. That's yeah, like every out, author's like, dream, I think, to write a book that like fixes an element of their family or brings them closer together. <laughs> I don't know. No, you wanted to write to get as far away. From yeah, your family. well, it's just parts of the family. But <laughs> Let's move on to uh, the book that you chose for us all to read, which is "The Chairs Are Where the People Go." How to Live, Work, and Play in the City by Misha, Misha Globerman. Glu- yep. All right, Misha Globerman and Sheila Hetty. Um, it's a uh, this is a really interesting little book. It's nonfiction. It's essentially a series of interviews in a way because Sheila typed it out while Misha talked. Yes, and it's sort of just Misha philosophizing, talking about life, um, and he's just an an interesting person. Um, so tell us why you picked this book and what your relationship to it is. Well, I pick, I picked it, uh, so full, full disclosure, uh, they're both friends of mine. Um, Misha, I've known since 2003. Uh, he runs a really popular lecture series. He's the host of a popular lecture series in Toronto called Trampoline Hall, in which, um, people come to talk about subjects that they are not experts in. Sheila and Misha have been uh, friends for a very, very long time, and uh, Sheila is a wonderful, wonderful author in Toronto, and I would urge anyone who uh, who is interested to go out and pick up her stuff, because uh, she's a terrific, a sort of avant-garde experimental fiction writer in Canada, uh, one of, I think one of the best in the country. Um, and so yeah, so they wrote this book together, and the whole idea was that uh, Misha is uh, an interesting, very, very clever, you know, Harvard-educated, blah, 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 uh, but eccentric guy who has a lot of opinions about how to exist in the city. And, and he, he's made Toronto his home, and he loves Toronto. And uh, and Sheila, at some point, decided that um, she should write a book about everything Misha knows. So, so, yeah, over the course of, I think, three years, they just had all of these conversations. Misha talked, Sheila transcribed. And it, you know, it turned into this book uh, of little opinion pieces, basically, about various things. Um, and I think the New Yorker described it as, as conversational philosophy, which uh, right. I think is like the best way to put it. Right. And the reason I chose it was because since I've moved to Los Angeles and have been on my own writing, um, I feel like my brain's gone a bit slack. Yep. So I... You know, that's why you're also here today. This is a bit of an intervention. <laughs> yeah, Your brain happening. is slack. Your brain is slack We've in America. We've been meaning to tell you like something. Yeah, this ends in like a dexedrine prescription and you guys buying me like an you got office dexedrine? space. Right? If you got dexedrine, bring it out. That is how I wrote the third draft of that book. It's <laughs> very high on dexedrine. This is one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. But I also know that Todd didn't love it and i i, I could have I guessed that from, from the second i started it me too i have to say the first thing i thought was oh tad's gonna be mad yeah and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the question i That's sort of came up with the question conclusion. the question I'm, I'm, I'm gonna pose to todd is 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 this a work of, of philosophy as a small slight philosophy or is this like a zen hipster posing well here's the thing it's a little awkward because Catherine's friends with them yeah uh, but i'm not gonna let that stop um, you know, I started reading it. I was wearing basketball shorts and a t-shirt. By the time I was done, I was wearing a ratty brown cardigan. I had a messenger bag slung over my shoulder. Weezer was playing quietly in the background. And I traded in my BMW for a Prius. Yeah. Um, you just described that me doing it too. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's why I love the book. Yeah. You became a better person. Yeah, what's your I became, I became better, everyone around me became better people. You know, I, uh, it felt a bit like Whole Foods philosophy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like philosophy that's palatable for people who just got out of Urban Outfitters. They're walking over to Whole Foods to get their dinner. 
and they're going to go home and try and feel better about themselves. Right. Uh, and the thing is, it's not even like I disagree with anything in the book. I mean, this is, this is you know, I am... You disagree with the, the book's right to exist. I disagree with the book's like. right to exist. Well, let's actually talk about what's in the book, too, a little bit. I mean, because we say it's philosophy and stuff. But, but let, let me say one thing, okay. though. I think part of the issue for me um, is that I don't think this is a book to be read page one to page 200 words. To read it one thing at a time, I think I'd find it humorous and engaging and interesting. I think read in its totality from page one to the ending, I began to feel graded on. One thing that's interesting, I, I know, Ryder, you want to talk about what it is. So I'll say it's, you know, it's obviously a number of interviews that were once together and then they're structured in a, a more random or circular fashion they've been broken up they are largely about how to live in a city and how to play charades and what improv is um but one thing i, I todd i'm a little surprised actually at your analysis because some of the things in here are kind of counter portlandia you know that idea I mean, some of the things about how to live were specifically counter to those ideas. Like, it's okay to be alone in the city. Yeah, the first essay actually is yeah. exactly that. Yeah. And I, I, really, I like the first essay, and I like the essay about actually battling for control of the neighborhood sound with the, with the bar. I think, you know what it is? Um, there's a lot in the book about charades, about teaching charades, and about teaching improv. And I like to go to improv, and I like to do charades when Ryder is in charge of it. But I think talking about teaching charades and teaching improv is like telling other people your dreams. Like, when you're involved in your dream, it's awesome. But when you're trying to explain to other people why that dream is awesome, the other people are like, I, you know what, I, I wish they were done talking Well, that's something, that's something that I was wondering, because I know, Julia, you're in an improv troupe, and... And, yep. you know, I'm, I've been an actor all my life and I do host a run in charades game regularly. So I wonder how much this is geared, this book is made for, you know, people that perform or people that consider themselves artists of some type that, that, that a social art mm -hmm. artists of some type, not just writers, because there's a lot of concern with, uh, group dynamics. He talks about experimental music and he talks about. I mean, to me, if, if you can boil down a lot of his stuff, it, he talks about the nature of surprising yourself mm -hmm. a lot as an artist and and sort of stumbling upon um, insight by, you know, these these kind of experimental group things that he does, like charades or improv. And, and you know, a lot, a lot of times it comes up, it comes, it boils down to this idea of like he likes miscommunication or he, he likes how people yes. fall into something and say something or make a noise even that they didn't expect to, that maybe doesn't even make sense, but that that experience is somehow fun and entertaining in itself and interactive. Um, and I love that stuff because I know as, you know, as an actor, um, I, I've never had a fear of charades. I've never had a fear of that, but I've watched people go through this experience where they're like, I could never play charades. And mm -hmm. you're like, just come play with us once. And then they fall in love with it mm -hmm. and they become addicted yeah. to it. And it's not really about being good or bad at the game, which is something he says. It's like, it's about Finding learning how to enjoy to miscommunication. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So all of that stuff totally spoke to me. Um, I think this was so insightful for me. Um, it's number 62, Failure in Games. And it's about, you know, if you're mess, it's two paragraphs. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's about making mistakes in games. So the end of the essay is, does that mean that playing baseball is a miserable experience because you're mostly failing? 
If you miss the ball playing baseball, it doesn't mean you're playing baseball wrong. It just means you're playing baseball. And I just thought that was so I insightful. I totally circled that yeah. a million and, times. And I absolutely love that line. I think it's a, <laughs> think it's a great line. Here's my thing. And, and I think part of this comes from um, dreadful corporate experience that I had, which is that periodically, and this was a long time ago, obviously, um, before I became a big time famous writer, um, you know, we would get these like life coach dudes who would come into the advertising agency I was working for or the employment agency I was working for, or just a couple years ago to the university I worked for, where they would come in and try to teach you the artist's way. And I'd think to myself, because who else am I going to think to? I'd think, you know, number one, most of these people aren't artists. I clearly am. Uh, most of these people aren't artists. And you're, you're trying to impose a structure on them that they don't get. I mean, I, I don't believe everyone has a novel in them. I don't believe everyone has an improv in them. I don't believe everyone has a painting in them. I believe those of us who do this are bestowed with a certain talent to do this sort of thing. And to try and create art for people um, who aren't inclined to it sometimes, I think seems a little precious well, to me. But he's not putting... I, mean, I, I think it's a, there's a, a difference, though, because his whole thing is not like not to create a finished product or not to create a perfect improv. Mm -hmm. His whole point is to open up something through the experience so that somebody he's he's not hoping that like they're going to create great music right. or that, that that you know that because i mean it sounds like his music thing is mostly people just kind of going <laughs> or like doing weird sounds which i, I actually want a youtube which I, I'd, I'd like to just do that in my yeah. car sometimes but that's what i mean you like to do that people like to do that and like you know i cannot sing to save my life but i love singing so much mm. and so like something like his workshop would be perfect for me because i've come to terms with the fact that i'm never going to be able to sing like i've come to terms with that like Right. And so doing something where I could could sing, where I could vocalize and have fun with a group of people and make something that's kind of sounds somewhat cool as a group, I would totally be into. Maybe, maybe you know? my thing is this, is that I don't feel like you need to be given permission to do this stuff. Like, you don't need to go somewhere to do this stuff. I feel like if you want to do it, do it. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean... Oh, but come on. You can't, that's, that is, no, you can't yeah, just I do it. Like, yeah. I wish we could all just be like, yeah, let's just do whatever we yeah. want. When but that's, want. like, why people start book clubs. That's right. why people... St I feel like we need activities to... And, like, the fact that he's thinking outside of the box with those activities is pretty awesome to me. I don't you know. You know, I, I really do like that idea that just like creating art if we were if we were doing this podcast and never putting it online would we still get enjoyment out of it i think we absolutely would yeah. when and it's worth thinking about uh, when when a, a piece has been written with joy or with a certain amount of joy or even just energy maybe not joy maybe maybe that's asking too much of a, of a creative uh moment as to imbue it with joy because I, I usually hate writing uh but <laughs> what i do but I, I do feel a lot of um fervor when i write so so even to just imbue a creative moment with energy makes usually will make it interesting to somebody else. Yeah. You know, like if, if there, if there is some, and it doesn't have to be positive energy. It doesn't have to be like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Maria in sound of music on the top of the mountain spinning around singing kind of joy. But as long as it's been done with some kind of impetus and fervor, I think that it is, it, it, it can be worthy. And Definitely. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that, that's, that's my point. I saw the book on Amazon. I thought, I'll enjoy that. And I remember reading about it in the New Yorker. And I think what I thought I was going to get was sort of like a David Rakoff, David Sedaris mm -hmm. take on these sorts of things, where there is an inherent conflict in each piece, other than, here's my view. Pure observation. Right, then pure observation. And I think the challenge with reading pure observational stuff is that 
if the observation that person is making is one that you already share or that you already agree with, if it's not enlightening to you, it just seems like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that, that's a good observation. Something that David Sedaris and like Rakoff and these guys do is um, they put a little bit more of themselves mm -hmm. in there and that they create a character for right. themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's a side effect of him not being the actual transcriber of this book yes. you learn a little bit about his personal life but really it's not like he's as strong of a character the same way that uh those guys consciously create a persona that, mm -hmm. that you get you have a very clear outline of who those guys are in their in their and, and it's a self-deprecating view right. too yeah. he's not very self-deprecating mm -hmm. in yeah. this I, you I, know? Like yeah. I, I think what is happening here is that misha and sheila think that they are writing a philosophy book mm -hmm. and the reader inherently begins to crave this mini bio personal Narrative. essay. Yeah. I mean, I desperately want to understand this person's introspection, but that's just not what he's after in this book. Right. And without really she, without Sheila's questions, we don't know what she's asking him. Right. We don't know yeah. how often she's inserting herself in this dialogue. We don't know a lot about how this was made and i mean don't be tricked by thinking this book is by misha this book is by sheila right. like yeah. she's making all of the edits and i was going back through it. i told Ryder i read this three weeks ago and i couldn't really remember a lot of stuff and i just i basically skimmed the entire book and i realized upon the second skim read that the editing is extremely artful yeah. it seemed um it seemed uh random to me the first well, she time, even admits in the floor I, she makes it sound kind of haphazard she's right. like i put it in some kind of order but but, but she didn't no, I, mean, I know it's very second, clearly well the second yeah. to last one this is this is amazing the second to last one is finding an ending and the conclusion on that is finding an ending is like saying play a little bit better for a while and then stop and then she puts the best story as the last yeah, essay so which true. is that's exactly what she's doing and the second essay is how to make friends mm -hmm. aka how to lure your reader into this book i mean she is doing heavy editing lifting in this i mean to me it, it is a zen little book it reminds me of like um like i remember when i was a teenager remember the the, the Tao of Pooh? Mm -hmm. yeah somebody read that yeah. like oh i love that i love we all loved like i totally when i was a teenager that book was like a, you know and it was a way to sort of get into Taoism. and i kind of feel the same way about this book yeah. in a weird way i'm like i want to give this to everybody and say some chapter somewhere is going to speak to you and like you should think about some of this stuff and like just leave it at that like i you don't need to like love everything about this guy and everything about this the sheila like but I, mm -hmm. I did, but I, you know, I think that like, I mean, I live with me, but I think Todd has like a cultural reaction to them more than anything. Yeah. You know? I feel like Todd's reaction to it was more aesthetic yes. than it was. Cause you kept on making references to Whole Foods and Urban Outfitters <laughs> yes. and like, you know, wearing your, your, not let them shop at all of those places. Yeah. Um, that's the irony. I think that with a book like this, you know, considering it's, it's sort of unconventional format, I really do think that, that we have an underdeveloped uh, lexicon just generally as readers to interpret something that has been. Yeah. Hi, you know, highly edited by a writer and and kind of written in a way or said in a way by a non-writer. Like it's an odd, it's it's an odd work of art. And I think that sometimes when something is new, our first response to it is, it is ugly. I don't understand it. I don't have the vocabulary with which right. to interpret this thing. And, um, and you know, the Tao of Pooh, is, that's, the, that's perfect. Like, it falls within that category far more than it falls within the Sedaris first person, yeah. wacky mm -hmm. uh, essay uh, category. And I think that if you were to maybe just, you know, adjust your classification of the book, then you're, you're, you're probably in, a, in better stead to uh, have more of the stuff resonate or have traction with mm -hmm. you. Uh, Julian Ryder, why did you know that I wouldn't like it? 
because I sure feel jerk. I, no, because <laughs> you're I'm dead inside. I feel I well, I feel like you do have a you have a reactionary you like you have a thing about hipster culture, and I there is something about this book that remind like. Uh, even Catherine referred to it as an indie book or an right. indie, and I think that that's right. I mean, I, I don't judge that in the same way. You know, like I, I think that that's fine. I kind of, you know, if anything, I am closer to a hipster culture. Not that anybody that's a hipster would ever call themselves a hipster, but I feel like for you, there's a reactionary. Like you actually <laughs> hate it, and like, <laughs> like, and and so reading this, I was like, there's a whiff of that, and that's what Todd's gonna react to. It's like. Because I think you're very, you're, Yet. yeah. I mean, even just the way you were like, oh, messenger bag, Prius. I mean, like, that's. And I, by the way, I own a messenger bag right. and I, I use it every day. Right. This goes to a larger question, but I mean, I'm going to say I don't hate everything about hipsters and all, that whole culture is something that we, for some reason, like, everyone knows what it is, but we've all decided that everything about it is negative mm-hmm. and eye rolly. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like I can see that this book is totally a hipster book, but I still like <laughs> it. Well, and like, why? Why is that? You know, why is that wrong? Is the big question. See, here, here's the thing. Also, is that it's not like, like I said, I don't disagree with anything that's in the book necessarily. Yeah. So I see and I understand why this book is valuable for a lot of people. I think that it should be read by a lot of people. I think that people should buy it and they should carry it around in their back pockets. I think for me. Um, Finally, it just boils down to I felt like I was being talked to, and sometimes like, I don't like to be talked. Yeah, being lectured to, or, yeah, or it's right. you know I don't know if you have a problem with authority, but you know there's fuck the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but you know, I think that yeah. he is he has taken on a you know a mm-hmm. pedagogical role, um, right. and sometimes you're not up for that. So no, you know yeah, that might be it. So definitely, I, Todd, I bet you would have liked this exact book ten times better if it was in interview format. Yes. If it was the same exact content. I mean, I love listening to and reading interviews. If I had seen the the questions, I would have totally liked it. I think you're right. I love this book. And even though Todd hated it, I'm glad. <laughs> Catherine, I'm Todd really, I'm really glad. I think, I think Todd came around. But I'm really glad you chose this book. I'm and really now I really want so you much. to introduce me to Amisha. They're going to come back so. to LA and we'll have a time. All right. All right. I won't be invited to that. No, you will not. No, you will not. I would like to come. We'll tell them to listen to this podcast, too. I've got some stuff going on at home. All right. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming in and suggesting an awesome book. And thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Literary Disco. Oh my